the epistle of James is one of the most neglected books of the New Testament. One writer suggests, perhaps somewhat harshly, that we treat the epistle of James like the junk mail of the New Testament. We don't really pay attention to junk mail. We get a lot of junk mail in our, in our inboxes and we discard them. In fact, James, as always it seems, had a turbulent time even amongst some of the greatest of the Christians of old. Some feel that the book of James is enigmatic. It is a strange book. It lacks coherence. They will tell you it's very difficult to know how to divide James and how to structure the book. Perhaps, though, the greatest critic of James was Martin Luther the Reformer. And part of it, I believe, was because he, he thought that James was contradicting the Apostle Paul on the doctrine of justification by faith. But Luther, as we recall, was the one who said that James is a right, stroy epistle. A stroy epistle. Didn't think that it had a lot of theological content. In fact, he thought of James as one of the lesser writings of the New Testament. Now, he did not remove it from the Bible. He just thought it was not as powerful and as important like the writings of James and particularly that of the Apostle Paul. We know a little about James. First of all, it is evident that James was the brother of our Lord. If you were to go to the book of Galatians and chapter 1 verse 19, Paul talks about going up to Jerusalem after his conversion and he says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James was the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also know that he and his other siblings did not believe in Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And it appears that after the Lord was raised from the dead and appeared to James, that he believed. It also becomes evident that James assumed even de facto the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. You would have thought that Peter, who was so outgoing, who had been with the Lord, would have been the leader in Jerusalem. But it is James who apparently led the elders in Jerusalem. It is he who speaks for the elders in chapter 15 of Acts. It is he who sends a letter to the church in Antioch because of the divide that, there, that played itself out in Antioch. He was a leader. Some said that he had knees like a camel, hard and tough. Because he was a man of prayer and spent a lot of time on his knees. 
In fact, he was called James the Just, the Righteous, a godly man, a man that is highly reputed, it seems, not only in biblical and theological circles, but even in circles outside of the scriptures. Eusebius, the, the historian, and I, I pause at this historian, Eusebius was a historian who lived in the latter part of the 3rd and to the early part of the 4th century, somewhere around 260 A.D. to about uh, 330 or so A.D. And he was a historian. But there is a, a more modern-day historian called Jacob Burkhard, who describes this ancient historian, Eusebius. He says of him, he says this, and it's not flattering. He says, Eusebius was the first thoroughly dishonest historian of antiquity. The first thoroughly dishonest historian of antiquity. You see this? Who we rely upon to tell us a lot about the Christian faith and its developing. That is very harsh. Well, Eusebius tells us that James died because he was stoned to death by the scribes and the Pharisees who demanded that he recant his faith in Jesus Christ and he refused and so he was martyred. Josephus, the Jewish historian, backs up Eusebius and tells us that James was martyred in A.D. 62. Now, we cannot tell you when he wrote this book of James, but surely it must be before A.D. 62. When? We cannot say precisely. But we do know that this book belongs to what we would classify as the wisdom books. You have the book, for instance, of Proverbs in the Old Testament, that is the wisdom book, the major wisdom book of the Old Testament. Well, James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is the New Testament's wisdom book. You can see wisdom, for instance, in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. But James is intended to be a practical book, a book that discusses the practical aspect of the Christian faith. And James is very concerned with the, the character of what genuine faith ought to be. So he's concerned with how genuine faith must express itself. In the first chapter, James discusses this whole matter of trials and Christian maturity, according to Douglas Moo. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 18, he's discussing the Christian and this matter of Christian maturity. And you notice he begins this epistle by calling upon believers to consider it all joy. Notice he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, referring to the people of God who are in the dispersion, scattered throughout the world. The church of God exists 
right across the world, according to James. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He begins his epistle, having identified himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and having told them that he addresses this, this epistle to the people of God scattered abroad. It is clear that this is a circular letter. He, first of all, begins with an exhortation to consider it joy when we encounter various kinds of trials. He begins with a command. He says, my brethren, consider it all joy. The term that he uses to consider means to engage in an intellectual process, to think. James says that we must consider it all joy. In fact, in the original, in the first two words of the, of, of the, of the Greek, it is all joy. Consider. And so the emphasis is placed upon joy. Consider it all joy. When you fall into various trials. We see the exhortation to consider it joy when we encounter various trials. Now this is a shocking statement. By any standard, the call to consider it all joy, some people say pure joy, when you fall into various trials, is a shocking statement. Because believers do not, people on a whole, do not naturally rejoice in hardship. We do a number of things. We complain. We murmur. We become discouraged. But, but James says that the believers should rejoice in trials. Consider it all joy. It is a command. Now, he, he says we are to consider it all joy. When we fall into various trials. The term that he uses for trials, periasmus, is the same term that is used for temptation. If you were to turn or to go down to verse 12, James 1, 12 and 13, you will see there that periasmus, translated here as trials, is translated there as temptation. James says, blessed is a man who endures periasmus. Blessed is a man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, the same root word, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. James says that when we are faced with various trials, we are to consider it all joy. And the difference between trials and temptation is simple. Trials refer to the various pressures and distresses and hardships that we encounter in life and that have come to us from God and are meant to strengthen us in the faith. Temptation, however, refers to the enticements and the inducements 
whether from within ourselves or from without, these temptations, these inducements to evil are sent by Satan to lead us into sin. Now, the same set of circumstances, so the same stresses and pressures and hardships, may be on one hand a trial or trials from God, because God intends them for our good and for our strengthening, while these same temptations or same trials are used by Satan as a temptation to lead us into sin. Now, James says, we are to consider it all joy when we fall into various trials, into various hardships and troubles. Because they are intended to test our faith. The reality is that God has destined that Christians should suffer trials and temptations of various kinds. We cannot but read in the New Testament. For instance, in John 16 verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. It is not a matter of if you will have tribulation, but when. Notice that James says, my brothers or brethren count it all joy if you fall into various trials. Is that what your translation says? No. It is when you fall. James expects that the audience to which he writes to these believers scattered abroad, that they will inevitably face trials. So he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It is inevitable that if you are a believer, you will endeavor, you will indeed enter into and face troubles and hardships of various kinds. In fact, the scriptures remind us of this reality that God has destined Christians to enter into tribulation. I mentioned to you John 16 verse 33. But Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Paul himself, we're told, retraced his steps through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You and I will never be, while we are in this body, free from troubles. And if you are enjoying a fairly wonderful patch without much problem, know that if you are a Christian, something is going to hit you. It must be that way. And so James says, 
First of all, here's an exhortation. Consider it all joy. When you fall into various trials. It's an interesting word, fall, because it connotes the idea of an unexpected encounter with trials. Most of the shocks that we endure in this life come to us in unexpected ways. James says, count it all joy when you fall into, when you're taken unaware, without notice, by hardships and by trials. Consider it joy. Consider it all joy. My friends, this would be very difficult to stomach if it did not arrive, did not come to us from the mouth of God himself. This is not a suggestion. This is a command by God for us to consider it all joy. The second thing that you notice in the passage is the reason to consider trials joy. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let patience or endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now James does not encourage them to consider trials all joy because he believes in a form of Christian suffering, a Christian that delights in, takes masochistic delight in pain. No, he says, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It is precisely because of the produce, the result of testing and trials that believers are to rejoice. He's not saying that we are to rejoice because of our pain. He's not saying that we are to take delight in our sufferings, but rather in the end result, in the goal, in the termination, in what suffering produces. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the joy does not come from the suffering itself, but in the fruit of suffering, in the end result of suffering. <coughs> what James would have us understand is that suffering is good or testing is good. The kiminon refers to the proving of our faith, the testing of our faith, like you put metal in, a, in, in, in fire to test its genuineness and to, and to purify it. 
So suffering tests our faith, our trust, and our belief in God. And this suffering is good because it brings about endurance. In fact, James says the same thing in verse 12 of this chapter. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Peter himself says something similarly. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and to the honor and to the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Both James in chapter 1 verse 12 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7 tells us that testing, testing of our faith leads us to eschatological victory. That there will be at the end of the day glory for those who endure testing or trials. But here in our passage, James says that the reason that we are accounted all joy when we are tested, when we enter into various trials, it is because trials do something to us here and now. It produces within us patience, hypermene. And hypermene is a term that I have referred to on many occasions because it appears frequently in the New Testament. It is indeed a compound word. It comes from hupor, hupo meaning under, and meno to remain. So it means to remain under. It means to stay in a place beyond an expected point of time. To remain in a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. It means to stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure. It is the capacity to bear up, to remain under a load without giving up. As I mentioned to you that the best picture that I can think of of hupomene, endurance, is of a weightlifter who lifts 500 pounds and grits his teeth and digs in his heel and bears it and bears it. That's endurance. To bear up under a crushing load. It persists in the face of pressure without withdrawing. And this is what James would have these believers understand. That they are to stand up under pressure. That, that indeed the trial of their faith enables them to grow in endurance. In their steadfast commitment to God and to a life that is pleasing him. Jesus could say, and you will be hated for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And so Paul is saying, and so James is saying, the reason that believers are to, are to count to God joy, it is because trials, the testing of their faith, produces within them the characteristic of endurance. 
Paul tells Timothy, But you, O men of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience, that is endurance and gentleness. Peter, in writing in the second epistle of Peter, in chapter 1, 5, and 6, but he says, Also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance or endurance. You see, God expects endurance of his children. And James describes the development of endurance as a result of, of testing and trials. That the stresses that we have, that the trials that we have in life are given of God, that our faith might go stronger and that it might endure even in difficult times. It is important that we have an enduring faith. Because if our faith abandons us in trials, if we give up on our faith and our trust in God, then it means that our faith was never genuine. So that endurance, the endurance of our faith, proves the genuineness of our faith. In writing to the Romans, Paul could say in Romans 5 verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Christian life is not a 100 meter sprint. It's a marathon. It's an endurance race. What matters is not how fast you get up the blocks. You know, there are some, some people who come into the Christian faith, they go up like a rocket. They just seem to be growing and growing and growing. And not too long after they come down like lead, they just sink. Their faith did not last. The Christian life is all about lasting to the end. And one of the means by which the Lord enables us to last is by sending us hardships and trials. Because it tests our faith. It causes our faith to grow muscles, to become stronger, and to remain in God. To be able to say like Job, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Endurance. But Paul sees that, or rather James sees that, the testing of one's faith leads not only to endurance, but to maturity. But to maturity. And that is why James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But verse 4, he says, but let, let patience have its perfect work. Let patience do its job. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What he's saying is, when you are tested, 
and testing is developing patience and perseverance and endurance. All of these we're using as synonyms. You aren't to impede the work of patience. You aren't to, to sabotage the work of suffering which is producing patience. Because as you develop more and more in patience or in endurance, it will lead you ultimately to maturity. That's what he means when he says that you may be perfect. He doesn't mean sinless, but he means mature, complete, lacking nothing. All of these are synonyms for maturity. And what is James saying? James is saying that the Lord will send us trials and that they will test our faith. And the testing of our faith will lead us to endurance. And as we, pers we persevere in endurance in suffering, so we will come to Christian maturity. We will develop a mature Christian character of one who believes in God, one who knows God, one who delights in God, one who trusts in the Lord. This is what the Lord intends for the believers. They come to maturity. What I think is, is, is interesting is, if you were to read Ephesians chapter 4, 1 and 13, it shows you that maturation depends upon the teaching of the word of God. So you can read, for instance, where Paul tells the Ephesians, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God has given these to the church, these gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But you know what they have all of these different offices in the church have in common, all of them have in common teaching. You know, the, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, all the, they are all having in common the word of God. And it says, till, all, till, till we all come to the unity of the Spirit, or, or use your faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So that God has given us these different teaching gifts in the church so that we may come to the mature man, that we may grow up in Christ. So the Lord lead us in maturity by giving us the word and by giving us teachers of the word. But another way in which we are led into maturity is by the testing of our faith. God sends us trials. So that our faith is stretched and strengthened. And as we continue to endure in trials and hardship, we develop in maturity. We come into the full statue of Jesus Christ. James has counted all joy. He instructs us to bear our trials with joy, with all joy. He doesn't say that we are to grimly hang on to faith. In trials. He doesn't say that we are to exhibit a spirit of resignation. He says, count it all joy. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, 
you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Count it all joy. Just very recently, I was in conversation with a Christian friend who I esteem very highly. He had been married for many, many more, many years. Longer than I, I am alive. And he lost his wife. And as we conversed over his feelings regarding the loss of his wife, he tells me that he rejoices. There is a rejoicing in him because even though he has gone down this very difficult path, a path that he knew in the back of his mind might have happened, he may have gone before her or she would have gone before him, but he never quite understood what pain and suffering would be involved. And he says that he, he rejoices because in the hardship he experiences the love of God in ways that he had not experienced before. God comes through for him and reveals his kindness to him, comforts him. And so there is within him this rejoicing. But it does not mean that there is no pain. When James has counted all joy, he doesn't mean that we do not weep and we do not feel. You see, the Apostle Paul could speak about at the same time being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You see, the Christian has the ability to weep and to rejoice together. When James has counted all joy, he is not saying discount pain, pretend it doesn't hurt. He's not saying that at all. He's really saying in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your anguish, I want you to rejoice. Why? Because of the result, the end result of this ordeal through which you pass. Count it all joy. But fundamentally for us to look at our sufferings and for us to see them as joy, we need to think biblically. You see, we want to feel joyful. We don't want to look at our situation and feel joyful, but it's never going to happen unless there's a change in thinking. That is why he says, knowing. That is, that is the means by which we are to consider our circumstances and our hardship to be means of joy will only arrive by a shift in thinking. It must be the mind that takes priority over the circumstances and over the emotions. That when we are faced with various kinds of illnesses, when we are tested by tragedies, by harassment from non-Christians, and various forms of sufferings, we are not able often to control these circumstances, but we can control how we respond. But if we are to respond with joy, true joy, not a superficial joy, it requires a sober assessment of our circumstances. We must look at our trials and our hardships from the perspective of God. We must recognize that God is sovereign over all of life. That the way that we take 
is the way that he has designed for our good. We will never experience joy in our sufferings unless we have come to believe in the goodness of God. That God fundamentally is good and very good. We will never experience joy until we know that God has a good intention. That even though this valley through which we pass is indeed a dark place. And even though we face the shadow of death, we must believe that God is leading us to a good place, to a good end. That his intentions are not to harm us or to destroy us, but to do us good. Amen. And so the Lord knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me and tested me, I shall come forth like pure gold. Consider it, O oh joy, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. You must remember then that God is developing you. When, 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 you, when, you want to, when, when you want to have a beautiful ring, a beautiful piece of jewelry, you know, you, you know you, you, when you dig gold out of the ground, it's not the gold that you have around your neck and on your fingers. It has to go through a process of purification. It has to be polished. And you know what? Polishing is, polishing is never easy. Anybody who rubs your skin with sandpaper will be doing you a lot of damage. At least you will feel some pain if somebody starts rubbing your skin with sandpaper. And you know what the Lord does? He sandpapers us. And that is unpleasant. But it produces beauty. It produces beauty within. When God wants to lift us up, when God wants us to be like him, he puts us through the mill. He leads us in the valley of suffering. And it knocks off the rough edges. It makes us more like him. It develops our characters. So we trust him. And so we love him. There's a way that God draws us close to himself. He does it often through pain and through sorrow and through suffering. You need to remind yourself that when you are tested and you are in suffering, that you ought to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Peter says, he says, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Our Lord Jesus Christ, though he knew no sin, suffered. And we too will follow his footsteps. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. The race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Know that when you go through the waters and the trials of life, you're following in the way of Jesus because his way was a way of suffering. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured. This way that Jesus calls you to walk is a way that he himself walked while he was here on earth. This way of pain and this way of suffering and shame and hardship is the way he traveled. And it means that as you follow this way, you have the right guide, you have the best guide to carry you and to provide for you. May it please God that when you face trials, you may remember that this is the way designed by God for us. It is the way Jesus pursued. And it is the way that God develops within us the character of perseverance, endurance, and Christian maturity. So next time, say to God, give me the ability in my sufferings and trials not to lash out against you, not to curse you, not to be angry with you in my heart, but to rejoice in the fruit and the result of what you will do in me through these circumstances. Look at what God is going to do in you and rejoice in that for Jesus' sake.